You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, everyone. Thanks for being with us again. John Spirisavet and Dan Russ. Hey, Dan. Hi, John. Always a pleasure to uh, talk about the good place and Jewish ideas with you. Likewise. We're talking about Chapter 10, Chidi's Choice. I have to say, it goes to me a lot with the next one. Chapter 11 is What's My Motivation. I watch them kind of at the same time together. I think I can keep them straight because I wrote my notes down. So we'll try to confine ourselves um, to one episode. But these, this is a terrific span of episodes as we get toward the end of the first season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to give us a summary here? I will. I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. So uh, Michael tries to help Chidi choose between the two Eleanors, causing Chidi to flash back to his difficulties in life making choices about everything, from choosing up teams during recess to fulfilling the responsibilities of uh, being a best man. And we learn that Chidi's indecision is what led to his death. <laughs> Eleanor and Tahani both profess their love for Chidi and decide to deal with their conflict by deepening their friendship and sharing their favorite activities with each other. Eleanor wonders if Jason is in fact her soulmate, but Jason falls in love with Janet. <laughs> the greatest love story of all time. <laughs> the two of them get married. Watching Jason try to feed Janet cake unsuccessfully, Eleanor and Tahani both decide that they are not in fact in love with Chidi, and Tahani tells Eleanor there might be another way to keep her in the good place. <laughs> So there is so there is so many funny things in this episode. Yeah, I mean the wedding between uh, Jason and Janet's absolutely classic. <laughs> I was uh, thinking about that. I wanted to get this line right about uh, Janet's vows. Jason, when I was rebooted and I lost all my knowledge, I was confused and disoriented. But you were always kind to me, and according to the central theme of two hundred. 31,600 songs, movies, poems, and novels that I've researched for these vows in the last three seconds. That's what love's all about. <laughs> yeah. And then I think followed by that when they're, while they were watching uh, Jason try to feed wedding cake to Janet, who I guess doesn't eat, uh, I guess, so that she doesn't know how to put food in her mouth. Doesn't need mouth. The, the normal sustenance of human beings. No, <laughs> there's actually one of my favorite uh, midrushes has to do with, with these two. I'll stick oh, it in the notes a little bit there. Okay. Um, and I think it's, <laughs> was it Eleanor who said, I watched him, <laughs> about Jason, I watched him eat electrical tape. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking yeah, it was right. like that fruit, fruit by the foot, the like disgusting fruit leather. Oh, <laughs> oh that's uh, that's. Um... <laughs> I mean, and one of my favorite things is uh, the running gag. I can't remember if we've had it yet. When um, Jason just talks about being in love with a girl, and Janet always says, "Not a girl." Not a. Well, I think this <laughs> is actually the first time that uh, that, that comes up. <laughs> and that, that horrible thing at the beginning when, I mean, the show just, this episode just jumps right into fun where they're, I think they're in the, uh, the what's it called? The bud hole uh, in Jason's. Oh, oh right. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, something about the poster with Ariana Grande. And, like, and something about, <laughs> something about like I being in love with her, but wanting to be, I don't know, like, like my, like, a really like, crass description of love, as I recall correctly. <laughs> also, like being being wanting to be her like, to be like his sister or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, uh, and there at the beginning, I think where Tahani says, it would be one thing if that you're not a Buddhist monk, but you're barely even a regular functioning person. <laughs> <laughs> the way that the show treats Jacksonville and Florida is... Uh... Dan, are there some kids outside your window? There are nursery school kids. Yes. Cool. Yes. Portals. <laughs> <laughs> and now Trevor Lawrence. Oh my God. I can't even imagine what would happen if we still had the good place with uh, the Jaguars having drafted the most promising quarterback <laughs> prospect of the past decade. I'm pretty sure that Jason is is resting in peace these days. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good. Trevor. <laughs> we already have a Trevor in the good place and it's not, it's not good. Oh, he is not good. That's that's saying something. You and I haven't talked about Trevor. <laughs> no, I guess we haven't talked about Trevor. He is the embodiment of everything obnoxious and loathsome in this world. I'm, not, I'm glad you said obnoxious. I was trying to put my finger on uh, what it was in talking to, I think, in the last couple of, of episodes here of the podcast, we're talking about Trevor and uh, just what it is about him that pushes my buttons in addition to his obviously being evil. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, this is a classic episode in terms of the flashbacks around Chidi's indecision, and uh, I love the the thing on the the recess field with the uh, you know who he should pick and his going through all the the things you know uh, should he pick the girl because of gender politics or is that is that pandering or my limited male point of view and then, and then little little playground Chidi says you know I am I am vexed and his friend who turns out to be the the uh the guy who he's the best friends later with the best man thing you know always you're always vexed <laughs> and, then, and then when the bell rings at the end he says Chidi you have filibustered recess <laughs> you know it's unsurprising that um Chidi would move in circles when he was younger that used pretty serious words for uh for elementary schoolers i you know don't know somebody who would use vexed and filibustered in that way but seems apropos <laughs> right on right on brand oh my goodness um, there was so much the writers were super on in this episode so i loved the scene where you know he's sitting down with his friend trying to write the best man speech and you were feeling so bad for this poor person sitting on the couch and then you realize it's a total farce and he says I'm getting married in a month. I lied to you about the date so I could prove to you that you can't be my best man. <laughs> I mean, so so tell me, I, I think that um, both of us really talked about resonating with Chidi. You, 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 uh, you, you would ask like, you know, which character do you feel most akin to? So how does Chidi's indecision manifest? If, if, if that's at all, you know, uh, something that that's part of your your ongoing story. <laughs> <laughs> think about this out loud. What's I think troubling me actually now that you asked me that question is that I think Chidi also stands for the idea that if you take principles and try to like think them through with any decision in front of you, you can lead to indecision. And mm -hmm. he has moral principles, you know, he's really not quite sure what the kickball, well, the soccer, you know, situation, just how many uh, reverberations there might be and consequences. And mostly because you can't know what all the consequences are. <laughs> and uh, so if you're really trying to uh, figure out how a decision is going to uh, affect your future good character or how it's going to affect people you don't know down the line, then, of course, that that those good principles can lead you could totally paralyze you and um which leads me you know which makes me doubt the the value of having these principles and trying to use them to make decisions 
boy, in terms of what makes, I guess it's more the question of like, what makes me feel indecisive? What are the points at which I'm not sure what to do? Uh, I think that, you know, one thing that, that comes to me just in, in like public related civic life is thinking about the power of being able to teach and be persuasive to people mm-hmm. versus uh, being curious and listening and open-minded. And I'm often torn between those two things, you know, whether I'm selling out one by doing the other. Mm, that's really interesting. And what you, you know, what you just brought up sort of makes me think about Chidi's approach to decision-making, which is actually very externally focused when you think about it. He's largely talking about how he's going to be perceived by other people as he weighs the consequences of his decision. It's not, it's not how is this going to affect me, my soul, my well-being. It's all about, you know, whether people will see me as a misogynist or pandering or whatever, or like, you know, uh, whether or not I'll be able to, you know, give a, a best man speech that honors my friend sufficiently. And I'm not saying, I mean, like, there's obviously virtue in, in you know, his sort of self-annihilation of his ego and, and thinking about other people. And at the same time, you know, you wonder when he's sitting around, this is the episode where he sits and talks to, uh, I can't remember who he's talking to and he's trying to make a decision between the women and he, somebody tells him, go with that, Eleanor. And then he says, well, and he says, no, no, no. When I said that you had a thought, whether it was right or wrong, <laughs> just not being able to listen to that voice and think about, think about your own needs, um, uh, which is important. I mean, it's, it's not, it's certainly not unimportant. It's, it's obviously valuable to be considerate of others um, as per Janet's wedding vows, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> the lesson of love, what love is about. Um, and at the same time, you wonder what Chidi is actually, uh, what Chidi wants um, for himself, just for himself. I guess you could say that he wants to be well-regarded more than anything else. That's interesting. Cause I, I thought when, when I was talking in the previous episode to Rebecca about lying, there was a point where Chidi just says like, I can't be a person who lies. Like that's not who I am. Mm. And uh, any 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 kind of it's the one, you know. It's very not consequentialist. It's not about, you know, if I lie, I might hurt this person's feelings in that way, uh, which I think he also thinks about at times. But that it's it's a kind of refreshingly just self-contained in there. And I think where where Chidi has indecision is where he thinks of himself as having allegiances in all kinds of places you know to his to his own integrity to his best man uh to all the people who might have made the soup or the or the air conditioner right (laughs) and so yeah trying to and and maybe that's what it is too like trying to locate myself as like what's my special gift in this situation and trying to center that that may be something i forget to do or or i don't know so much to do how about mm-hmm. you? Is there a view of this cheatiness? In- Absolutely. I'm surely a ruminator um, and double, you know, question decisions and decisions uh, over and over and over again and think 5, 10, 15, 20 years out, uh, all of the imaginable consequences of anything that I do. So I, I am well, uh, well accustomed to the paralytic indecision <laughs> that cheaty experiences. And, you know, I think I, 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 to a certain extent, I wonder, I think it was uh, George W. Bush's memoir called Decision Points. And like he used to talk about himself as the decider. Mm-hmm. And I think that I wonder, you know, just because his presidency was at such a formative year, years in my life, that I kind of like distanced myself 
you know, like, you know, naturally is thought, well, that is not something that I want to be, right? I don't, I don't want to be, you know, a, you know, a, um, an inconsiderate desider, a decider. I want to be somebody who thinks and is thoughtful and, and makes choices based off of um, considerable evidence and, and, and reflection. So I, I don't know if that actually is a psycho, what that psychosocial analysis of myself is. Um, but I definitely remember thinking like, okay, so that, that's what the president's <laughs> not about being reflective and thoughtful. It's, and, uh, you know, granted, you know, decision, the decisions that are, are made in that office are, are important. Uh, and the decisions that all of us make are obviously important. And at the same time, I think uh, I similarly find a value in, in really thinking through. It's um, uh, it's interesting. I think the episode sets up choices as here, not choices usually between a good and a bad thing. And usually when we teach, I think, and we the rhetoric of choice is is that, is good choices, bad choices. But all of these things, everything from rock, scissors, paper, which uh, I believe Michael criticizes him for yeah, saying he can't decide because it's too many variables. And, um, you know, or should he use a dry erase board to even like, write down his pros and cons <laughs> or should he use pen and paper like even like there's literally nothing that he can't think of as as being susceptible to a choice and um there's a book that came out recently by the author that i can remember is is daniel kahneman um, but there's a couple of other authors uh, called noise and um it's a, it's a flaw in human judgment is what they, they talk about and it's just the ways that we set ourselves up through various factors that kind of cloud our judgment that or that cause us to make poor decisions. And one of the things that they argue for is like, you really should judge a decision that you make on the process by which you came to that decision, as opposed to on the outcome of that decision. So thinking about like, do I have the right setup? Um, they call it decision hygiene. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, interesting. Uh, do I have the right infrastructure? Am I, am I, uh, is, uh, is the way that I'm approaching decision-making healthy? and honest, uh, of course, uh, based off of enlightenment values backed by data. <laughs> so. well, that's interesting because that is the thing Chidi can't do. He cannot, he cannot give himself over to any process without, without questioning mm -hmm. that or, or questioning the outcome, you know, like what if, what if I make the wrong choice and that means that I went about it the wrong way? I'm wondering how, whether my thoughts about things that affect lots of other people or in my my role as a community role as a rabbi or whatever is different from making decisions in uh, in personal life. And I think there's a question about whether like decision, decision is a point, you know, a point in time kind of thing, this or that, but whether that's really a description of a, of a moral life, because we don't, uh, you know, so much of the show actually has been about your overall tendencies, your character traits, what, what we call midot in Judaism, which are revealed or which you apply or kind of bring to bear in situations, but but they're not about isolated decisions. Like every time you choose to be considerate of someone is not like a specific choice that you make like from scratch each time. It's just part of a pattern of, of mm -hmm. how you're living. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wonder also, as I, I think about this, from Chidi's perspective is what does it mean to think about decisions in terms of like probabilities of outcomes and things like that? Like he, he you know, he just gets so 
swept up in the um, catastrophous approach. Like you can certainly imagine the cognitive behavioral therapy <laughs> that he would need, you know, that would benefit him just as opposed to like thinking about the worst imaginable outcome of everything versus like just a, a process driven, well, what are the odds? What are the, what is the likelihood of each of these given outcomes and not thinking about it in terms of the different percentages. <laughs> the, um, the conscious, you know, there's a discussion in the episode about the, about the gut, you know, going right. by your gut, which is, uh, like W. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, but I mean, that's, that's sort of in a way that stands for something that's kind of the, it's not just like being impulsive or being, or narrowing your view, but something about like, you have, you have a knowledge or an intuition of what of what you could do of what your experience so far is leaning you toward that you could rely on so you don't have to work so hard at every single choice although it's interesting that he says this about you know choosing a soulmate which probably is a choice well i guess maybe not i mean that's no that's that's totally not true i guess we're going to talk about that it's that oh yeah right. yeah yeah Should we well jump i think that there's two sources that we we talked about bringing um so one just on the issue of decisions i'm going to share it's from the it's from the babylonian talmud it's it's a very famous source uh actually that's used very often uh in, in teaching about Jewish law and what, you know, the fundamental essence of, you know, this Jewish value of uh, machloket, dispute. And, and so Rabbi Abba said that Shmuel said for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagreed. And this is like the paradigmatic, there's two different approaches to the laws, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. And they said, the halacha is in accordance with our opinion. The Jewish law is in accordance with our opinion. And the other side said the halakha is in accordance with our opinion. And ultimately, a divine voice emerged and proclaimed, Elu ve'elu, both these and these are the words of the living God. However, the halakha is in accordance with the opinion of Beit Hillel. The, uh, the Talmud asks, since both these and those are the words of the living God, why were Beit Hillel privileged to have the halakha established in accordance with their opinion? And the reason is that they were agreeable and forbearing, showing us restraint when affronted. And when they taught the halakha, they would teach both their own statements, they're both on their own opinions and those of Beit Shammai. And moreover, they prioritized, meaning that they gave the, um, the opinion of Beit Shammai first. I think that this is a fascinating text to sort of bring to bear if, you know, I wonder what, how Chidi would respond to it. Because if you're talking about a decision in terms of like, well, we have your Beit Hillel angel on one side and your Beit Shammai angel on the other, and they're talking to you and they're kind of going back and forth. And, you know, you're thinking about all the different possible outcomes. Ultimately, there's a stated value according to Judaism to both. And not only is there a stated value, it's like the words of the living God, right? Like that both of these voices matter. And at the same time, we have to make a decision just because both of, both of these are the words of the living God does not abdicate us of the responsibility of moving forward. I, I love that. I love that you brought that here. I, I have been thinking about that particular text so much because of the, the tension between uh, being open to different views and making a decision and being committed to one. And not only being open, but sort of even afterwards remaining committed to the idea that both had the words of the living God in them, even though I'm making a decision about one of them. And yet, mm -hmm. you know, to what you just said before, I'm thinking that it read it open by saying that they 
it took them three years to get to the you know of actual either discussion or deliberation to get to that and i i makes me wonder like what happened during those three years was it three years of constant like cheaty like deliberation or was it a uh you know did they did they talk and then they they put it aside for a while or they couldn't stand to think about it for a while and how did they get there no it's very hard to hold these these two things together because it's I think, as I was saying before, it's it's much easier to think of how do we teach people to make good choices instead of bad choices, and what what's you know that's not as hard as this, which is to help people commit themselves between two reasonably reasonably good choices or reasonably reasonable choices. What you just said made me also sort of think about there is a decision hygiene process that is outlined here. We know that the halakha, the decision is according to Beit Hillel. But the decision hygiene is that you take into consideration the alternative view and you treat it with respect, right? But ultimately you do make the decision. And so there's something to be said for uh, entertaining, you know, the possibility of having your opinion be changed, be moved and doing so with a, uh, you know, sort of a friendly countenance, not the language that they use exactly, but just like a, you know, the most charitable possible interpretation. Um, and that, that's, uh, that's lifting up what is also clearly a Jewish value is, is, is a certain level of decency and restraint. Well, now that you're also saying that, and you mentioned Daniel Kahneman before, that, that this also seems like a process that generates a good, I don't want to say it as simple as like a good mood, but it's a, it's a, it's a positive way of viewing yourself or creating positive energy in yourself while you're making a decision, which is, well, you know, I'm thoughtful. I'm I'm deliberate. I actually have two uh, worthwhile things in front of me that I could do, and if I can go over those things, I won't be dominated by feeling clutched or uh, or bad about myself for what I might do wrong. But it just creates a you know creates a good environment in which to take pride in yourself, I guess, as a as a decider under conditions mm-hmm. of uncertainty. And Chidi works himself into feeling so completely the opposite. In the episode, what's what's you know, now, I, I was thinking so much of the the decisions that Chidi is being described as uh, facing are are silly. Uh, you know, which bar they should go to after the reveal about the wedding being in a month and stuff like that. But the decision he's actually facing is is like not only hard, but like harder than harder than hard because he's not only like he's in the presence of somebody else who's being asked to declare which one of these three options is his soulmate but there's constantly like for two of them there are dramatic consequences right? one of them will go to the bad place and one of them will get to stay and um, that's totally messing with his ability to to kind of narrow this decision to you know what it should be which is who do i love so you know the, the who do i love kind of brings us to the the second source maybe that i was thinking about bringing um which is you know, what is what does Judaism in its way have to say about soulmates? And this this is another classic source. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the best I can to sort of summarize it instead of reading it word for word. So there's a uh, a Roman woman who goes to a rabbi named Yossi ben Halafta, and she asks him, So in how many days did God create the world? And uh, Rabbi Yossi says, In six. So the woman asks, Okay. So God created the world in six days. What's been God been doing ever since? God is an instrument of, of history or an agent in history, according to um, Jewish tradition. Like this is kind of an interesting question, but uh, Rabbi Yossi says something different. He says, God has been making matches. So the daughter of this one to that one, 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this Roman woman says, and you believe in God for just doing that, for making matches? And she said, even I can do that. I have many slaves. <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> Men and women. And I can make matches for all of them for marriage. <laughs> and he uh, and Rabbi Yossi said, though this may be an easy thing for you to do for God, it is difficult as splitting the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea. Okay, so Rabbi Yossi leaves. And what does this Roman woman do? So she took her, you know, thousand male slaves, her thousand female slaves, just lined them up and said, you marry you and you marry you and married them off all at one night. And the next day, one slave had his head bashed in and the other lost an eye while a third was awful because of a broken leg. And she said to them, what happened? And they each said to her, I don't want this one with whom you matched me. And immediately she summons Rabbi Yossi back and says, there is no God like your God and no Torah like your true are pleasing and praiseworthy because you spoke wisely. And he said to her, didn't I tell you, if it appears to be easy in your eyes, it is difficult, it is difficult for the Holy One, the Holy Blessed One, as splitting the sea. So I just love this because first of all, it's kind of like a manifestation of like that, you know, ultimately God lives in sacred relationship. Like if we're, if we're even more expansive, than, you know, just, you know, our most sacred relationships, like the people who we choose to spend our lives with and make our families with, God intervenes in our lives, or we can feel God's intervention in that love and that relationship that we feel. And, you know, I wonder what you think of this source and sort of how it kind of applies to this concept of of the soulmate that, like, I'd say the good place is fairly flippant about (laughs) in its own way. (laughs) The soulmate idea is such a daring one for the show because it sort of sets up a lot just in terms of the the ability of the show to function, I guess. it's a. Uh, but uh, I, I actually, I have to admit, I've not been thinking about the idea of soulmates that much because we've had so much to, to munch other on stuff. with uh, with other stuff. And, you know, I'm, I've been married, uh, as we're recording this, I'm just a couple of weeks past my 30th wedding anniversary. And thank you. And to a person who I, I think of as my soulmate. And there are so many things that, in a way, even random things that happened in order for us to come together, you know, ha- happenstance things in our lives, things that made it possible for us to be in the same place and continue to be in the same place for our relationship to to germinate and not to mention go you know i want to be cheaty like and go back into history as to things that uh the truth is if it hadn't been for uh, hitler and the nazis right we wouldn't be together and for all Mm -hmm. kinds of things in our Uh our personal stories and i know that the version of myself that exists now you know who i am and how i am is entirely wrapped up uh with the fact that I married Lori and and I and I remember early on we were in college when we met and in a way there was a little bit of choice I, in fact I think about I, I was actually I the person I was standing next to the moment at, at the moment I met Lori or Lori was introduced to me was right in my head uh, over the few days this is the beginning of my my junior year of college someone I was also thinking of asking out and it was very clear to me that deciding which of these women to Sue uh, represented <laughs> two very. T- it was life, totally God. a cheating. It wasn't cheating moment. In my life. It would have been two totally different 
they're two different people and it would have been different relationships and, and more. So it would have been different versions of myself that would have emerged mm -hmm. out of that. So, so I don't spend at any time at all really thinking about, you know, is this version of me? I, I, I'm very delighted. <laughs> I am more than delighted. Uh, I can't imagine anything other than the choice that I, that I made. You know, the other thing is that it's so many years later and the, right. I'm now, I'm now, you know, more than twice as old as I was when this, you know, choice of destiny, which was obviously a choice that two people had to make, you know, to affirm that. And, uh, but, but how could we possibly have seen what would emerge out of our lives, what our lives would become? The other thing is, though, as a person who, who uh, performs marriages, and you and I were just talking about this. Uh, a few oh, that's days right. Ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we were. That it makes me really nervous. I, I used to recite this story that you talked about all the time, at sort of the beginning ceremonies before weddings, the the ketubah signing where where people start to get together and sort of segue from the 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 chaos of wedding days into the ceremony. And uh, but I'm also conscious that like I I I never know when I'm about to marry someone whether in fact they found their their soulmate. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who I was pretty convinced that when I did their wedding and he was my uh, one of my close friends that uh, that they were that things are going to be great and uh, they're divorced and it was not, it has not been good. Uh, yeah. It makes me really, it makes me really nervous to kind of quote that story and say it about somebody else. How about you? How do you think well, about this? What you just said kind of makes me think about recording. Uh, I brought up like the data and one of the things I try not to think about when I'm sitting across from a wedding couple is that, you know, if you just take the outside view and look at the odds in, in American society writ large, you're sitting across from a 50-50 shot. So that's something that strikes me. But I would say that, you know, I sort of think about the same thing. So I, I also consider Jade, my wife, to be my soulmate. And I think about the array of circumstances that kind of lined up for us to meet each other and, and sort of feeling potentially some divine intervention there that, you know, allowed that relationship to blossom. Of course, in Jerusalem, of all places, when we were both uh, students there, it's right. Like, it's like, you know, that's especially beautiful in its own way. You know, I think that when I, uh, I, I had a, a wonderful teacher named Rabbi Jan Katsu who, who points out, you know, I, I don't think I've met Lori, but I'm sure that if I met her, I would found her, find her to be, you know, all kinds of wonderful and be able to name wonderful traits about her. And if I asked you about her, you'd be able to name all kinds of wonderful things about her. And, you know, if you met Jade, you know, I, you know, be able to say all kinds of wonderful things about her. And at the same time, you know, in spite of our ability to name these wonderful things about these other people, we wouldn't have the same, you know, I wouldn't be able to have the same kind of relationship that you do with Lori. And you wouldn't have the same kind of relationship that I do with Jade. And that there's something that goes beyond just these listing of characteristics that you know allows for the depth of our relationships for that sanctity and i'm kind of thinking about that moment when eleanor is listing all the things about cheating that drive her nuts <laughs> and then she says oh my god i'm in love with cheating yeah and like there's something there's something much more real about that and ultimately like you know spoiler alert we know what kind of becomes of their relationship which is which is a beautiful thing and uh that that's um in in, in its own way truer then, you know, said kind of the superficial things that Tani is kind of thinking about. And also Tani thinks that Chidi loves her, which is like just a completely other. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was just complete, you know, it's like, I just was trying to, you know, kind of process the romantic comedy elements of this particular episode. Um, Cause it was, you know, just so uh, it was, you know, 
uh, we could probably go through, you know, several of the, those 200,000, you know, different poems, things that Janet said, and try and figure out what illusions are being made across, you know, <laughs> uh, across fictional time and space. <laughs> yeah, you know, in addition to being very much about, like, weighing our choices, I thought that the, this episode was very much about how we think about what it means to love someone and to be loved. Yeah. It, I mean, there's some really wonderfully nuanced things that are said in 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 these moments of romantic comedy i think at the end where where both eleanor and tahani are describing why they don't think that chidi is their soulmates even though later on we're going to see that eleanor and chidi really are and eleanor i think says something like not so much hot for teacher but eternally grateful and then something about him being surprisingly ripped you know there's attraction but also like she she's sort of uh reflecting on their relationship and tahani's thing about i think she says that you know that we're the only highly educated sophisticates you know in the in the place and she might have been uh, duped by that and uh and then they both look at jason and janet as in the in this moment as having like a true a true love for each other like that seems to be the one thing in the that everybody looks at and says like this this seems to work they seem to belong uh and an argument for simplicity for um for as you say not thinking of it as a list of characteristics but there's a basic uh a basic kindness even though janet's not aware i guess you know or not yet the next episode there's a bunch of great stuff which uh, which Janet attempts to explain why it's okay for her to be with, with Jason. So there's one other thing I just want to offer about, you know, the, in, in talking about the Midrash uh, against, you know, in, in conversation with the good place, which is like the setup of the good place is that, you know, whoever is making the decision is the Roman, the Roman woman, right. Who has like said like, okay, I'm going to make these two people soulmates. Hmm. And ultimately as you mentioned, you know, we know where uh, Chidi and Eleanor are headed. Uh, and at the same time, Eleanor leaves this episode not believing that that's the direction they're headed. And the Midrash doesn't describe the mechanism by which God makes these matches. But one could imagine, and in particular, as, as you think about its comparison to splitting the Red Sea, that there's an element of wandering and wilderness and journey as part of it. And then part of what actually ends up making Chidi and Eleanor's relationship work is their shared experiences, is the journey that they go on together. And that if they didn't do that, they wouldn't be able to arrive at the place where they really are in fact soulmates. I think, you know, you, you and I, I think are both the kind of people who think about the range of types of relationships that there are, that are, yeah. <laughs> that are deep and profound. And soulmate is a lot to, uh, is a lot to lay on top of that for people. Yeah. And uh, not so much that I don't think that it's hard to imagine that two people could become soulmates who, who fall in love and and have many layers to their relationship. I think what's probably hard is the idea that there could only have been that one person in the universe. For you. Mm. And uh, I mean, I've known uh, people who, uh, and I think particularly now in my uh, you know current work in a congregation for the first time these past thirteen years, that thinking seeing people who are married for a second time and and talk about how you know both of the marriages were good maybe they they lost their first spouse um to illness and uh they they were in love and they were soulmates and and this next one if they don't use i mean nobody ever used that word soulmates to me but but it's possible you know to find this kind of deep and profound love 
again, which I think is interesting. So I don't have I don't have trouble, I think, with the concept of soulmate as a description of a of a you know, an ideal not maybe ideal is the wrong word, but a but a a, a kind of beautiful relationship. I just wonder whether the idea that there is one soulmate that you had to find uh, the odds of because the odds of your finding that person are so small and I think also I probably also wrapped up with my own um, guilt that I found some someone and that person has you know it turned out to be such a good choice and has led me to so many good things and um, and uh, and how much I wish for so many of the other people around me who are married and in in you know, tough situations, not just bad marriages, but just uh, really working hard on marriage issues that, uh, or not even, not right, we're in an age where people are together, but they're not necessarily married, but people working on couple issues who um, who struggle much more, and I feel like who deserve just as much as I do to have the many layers of a, of a soulmate-like relationship. Mm-hmm. I'm not pro-marriage, I'm pro-sacred relationships, however you find them. Um, and that, you know, ultimately uh, a lesson of, of both the Midrash and the, uh, and the show is that goodness and godliness and, and sort of like, not godliness is, 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 a, is a charged term, I would say, you know, the, the depths and heights of human experience occur when we're in relationship with other people. I, I wave my hand here as an introvert. Uh, among you and, and and stuff like that, and yet both the the data and the wisdom of, of tradition show that that you know when in doubt connect with people. Um, when in doubt connect with the people. It seems like in the trajectory of the show that there are these two relationships that are held out as very special. One of them being Eleanor and Chidi, and the other being Janet and Jason. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, one is, you know, Janet and Jason are built on this simplicity of kindness. Jason is a very pure soul who, as we've talked about, he just, uh, he has this concept of himself of the life he, the life he deserves to live. And I think he says this to Janet too, like somehow he's going to be the one who shows her the you know, is, is the path to the life that she deserves to live. And you think, well, how is that possible? She's a completely all-knowing uh, right. being who's also programmed, as I think she says, to be to be kind and helpful to everybody already. <laughs> and, uh, um, but uh, but she somehow sees that there's a piece of her, of her uh, all-knowingness and even her good-naturedness, which is missing, that somehow that somehow he adds. And, uh, and there's no question that they they there's growth that happens because of that. And it's funny because nobody says, I don't remember, my parents never sat down and said, you know, when you're looking for someone, like make sure that's a person you think, you know, can can help you grow. I don't think that was ever, you know, a language that uh, that we talk about. Nor do I think, actually, as I'm thinking about it now, I don't think that's a conversation I've had with, uh, with couples getting married either. Obviously, Eleanor and Chidi become that for each other. They help each other you know, in, in specific ways and in what's kind of their basic uh, soul program where they need to grow. We were talking, so you and I were talking a few days ago about what is it that we do when we meet a couple who we're going to officiate at their wedding. Do, is, is there anything like that, that you, that you probe with people? Like, is this someone, you know, how has this person help you, help you grow or learn? 
So my, uh, you know, my primary process um, for uh, preparations leading towards a wedding, I actually learned from my uh, teacher, Rabbi Nancy Weiner, um, who, you know, I learned it simultaneously while she was leading my wife and I through the, uh, through the process herself, um, uh, because uh, she was one of the two officiants at our wedding, is to do a timeline of the relationship and sort of talk about how growth <laughs> plays a part of that, of that, a part of their journey towards the chuppah. Instead of talking sort of directly about it, which is which is a great question, by the way, uh, that I might have to now incorporate into uh, into my uh, quiver. Um, uh, we we sort of live it out and talk about their you know relationship from from its beginning to to the the present moment and and, and then where it's going to go and where they're hoping it'll go nervous about trying to like encapsulate this soulmate uh discussion in one in one conversation mm. with you one podcast for fear of somehow getting it wrong we're gonna have a lot of time out. to talk about it <laughs> God, i mean it's gonna come up i mean it's like you know it's gonna not rear its ugly head rear its beautiful head constantly it's gonna be a theme that we you know circle back to and there's there's other sources that can sort of speak to these these questions for sure uh, in, in, in Jewish tradition. Well, I would like to be, I would like to think that my spouse is someone who, uh, if she was attempting to feed, feed me cake and I couldn't figure out how to, how to eat it. I'm trying to think I have my, my table manners have definitely improved, I think over the years, but there are, uh, there are things, you know, well, thanks, Dan. Great to talk to you again and, uh, looking forward to us picking up in one of the future episodes. Thanks so much, John. Always a pleasure. And that's a wrap on the 10th episode of Tove. Thanks for coming this far with us. We're working on something extra special for the end of season one. Stay tuned. If we've helped you think about something or just made you smile, give us a good rating and share Tove with others. I'm John Spira-Savet, and I'm at RabbiJS3. And Dan Ross is on Instagram with his wittily named Jewish-themed workout videos, at R-A-V underscore W-O-D. If you want to be in touch with questions or ideas, email me at tove at tovegoodplace.com. That's the website, by the way, where you can find show notes, deeper dives, and a lexicon of terms like Talmud and Midrash. Thank you again for listening, and go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.